0: This episode is hosted by Sean Falconer. Sean's been an academic founder and Googler. He has published works covering a wide range of topics from information visualization to quantum computing. Currently, Sean is head of developer relations and product marketing at Skyflow and host of the podcast, Partiality Redacted, a podcast about privacy and security engineering. Christian, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much. It's great to be here,
0: Sean. Thanks for, thanks for having me. Yeah, thanks uh, for being here. I'm you know, really excited for this. Uh, we've I think we've kind of known each other, I guess, in some capacity for a few years, but this is the first time we're actually ever speaking to each other with our voices face-to-face rather than essentially sending messages on Twitter. But um, <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. But correct me if I'm wrong, uh, I believe you for, first discovered some of my work from reading my blog while you were preparing for the show, Survivor.
1: Yeah, that's correct. So, uh, so I was uh, preparing for Survivor. i have actually been a long time Survivor fan before I was a contestant. And I guess I'm also a robotics researcher. That's I guess my my day job. But yeah, I came across your work uh, because you were working with I believe Angie Kant and um, and Amanda Rubinowitz, Dr. Amanda Rubinowitz, on this system for predicting who would win a season of Survivor based upon. Data available from an episode, and also informed by character traits. I thought that was is one of the few predictive systems out there that I thought was very thoughtful. And, uh, and uh, this is we, we can go into the weeds on this, I'm sure, for a long time. But uh, but it was really interesting. You use, I believe, uh, clustering to cluster together the different personality traits on a reality show to try to predict a winner, and it was 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 really successful until it predicted that I would win. Uh, until then. It it was it was really successful successful Uh, so I'm sorry to have broken that streak for you.
0: Yeah, no worries. Yes, I used a combination of like k-means clustering and naive base classifiers, some old school sort of uh, AI techniques, but which in some ways you know is very related to what we're gonna be doing today. But you know, I of course you know know you from Survivor um, and uh, as you know one nerdy man to another who that's also into the same reality TV we started you know exchanging those messages looking for potential projects uh, we we kind of talked about a couple times but we haven't really did anything until now and as i kind of tease we're, we're going to be talking about one of the hottest topics in the internet right now which is chat, chat gpt but maybe before we get there could you you know introduce yourself you touched on a little bit of your background but for those that aren't in the robotics research world or Survivor Superfans, what do you do and how did you get to where you
1: are today? And I guess, why are you qualified to talk about ChatGPT? So, so, first, so first off, and thank you for having me today. It's, it's good to be here. Uh, so my name is Christian Yubicki. I'm a robotics professor at the FAMU-FSU College of Engineering. I have a, my, uh, my background is in uh, robotics. Uh, my, my dissertation was in robot control and optimization methods to make robots walk and run better. We're talking your classic sci-fi two-legged robots that, that, uh, that you've seen in science fiction movies and Elon Musk has been dabbling in recently, that kind of stuff. Um, so I got my degree in mechanical engineering and robotics, uh, my PhD, and now I run my own research lab where we do, uh, sort of fast thinking, optimal control, for robots and we've expanded in from from bipeds into drones and some hyper agile maneuverable systems. And so we're very interested in how we can get computers to quickly compute a best response to a situation, Uh, which takes us to, I I guess, uh, analogously so into at least into the chat GPT world, which is taking in inputs and then trying to come up with the best response that it can. So in terms of my background, so I should, I should say, so my background is in robotics, and I do know some machine learning from, uh, from, from my course days, and I teach it in a few, few graduate-level classes. Uh, but I, I, I'm not a deep learning expert, so this is me uh, learning things from the literature and ge- my general understanding of the field. I feel like I learned machine learning right before the deep learning boom. I think I was pr- precisely ill-timed for the beautiful deep learning boom. I don't know about you, Sean, what was your background in machine learning? When when did you learn it?
0: Yeah. So my master's degree I did in AI and machine learning, but it was mostly on um, sort of designing models, new types of models for processing uh, textual information. And back then it was very much like, um, you know, bag of words approach of doing uh, essentially like, you know, distance measurements between feature vectors. It was really also before the deep learning, you know, I, I did a little bit of neural network stuff, but never at the level that people are doing it today. So I also kind of miss that era. So a lot of my, um, like, practical use of AI is probably, you know, 20 years, 15 years out of the date at this point, but still useful, you know, as, as uh, useful we, for sure. Yeah. But uh, it, it's still used in practice as well, but I'm kind of out of the loop on some of the things like reinforcement learning, some of the newer innovations that have happened in the in the space.
1: Yeah, and, and we'll get into the details soon, but it was, um, but yeah, a lot of these older techniques, I mean, we're talking like your support vector machines and those things for classification that, you know, and, and we can go into some of the categories of things. But, um, you know, for robotics, uh, they were really in their infancy when I was learning this stuff back in the early 2010s. Um, you know, people, the reinforcement learning was a thing. I remember when I was a master's student, I went, I found Sutton and Bartow's reinforcement learning textbook. And I just, I, I, I got the PDF, I printed it out and I read it, the whole thing over a spring break to, to just really digest it all. It was, and it was, and it was great for, for very simple systems, but as robots became more complicated, it it just wasn't ready. So I ended up using, uh, optimal control techniques, which tend to scale well to higher, more complex robots with more linkages, more arms and and motors and stuff. Uh, but these days, deep learning is, is is being more and more impressive for how to handle that complexity. Uh, sort sure, of diving right in here. But that's my background with uh, with so so um, so like when I go to conferences, you know, I'm talking with my with my colleagues, some of whom are really into deep learning methods for controlling their robots. I'm more on the let's call it the shallow learning side of the spectrum for what I, uh, for, for what I like, to, like to approach it. But that's my familiarity with deep learning and, and just the general fascination with, 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 the, with the cutting edge of AI and explaining it to people who are willing to listen for some reason.
0: Yeah, I think that's a perfect level for what we're going to be talking today. So you know, just kind of starting to move towards getting into the weeds here. A few weeks ago, I went to lunch with some of my former colleagues from Google And, you know, once we were done sort of discussing the recent layoffs that had been happening in the industry, and in particular at Google at that time, everything inevitably shifted to talking about ChatGPT, and we spent the rest of the time kind of talking about it. And it sounds to me, uh, just based on these conversations with various, you know, former colleagues, Google's pretty concerned about this as a, you know, from a threat perspective. So... First, what was your initial reaction to ChatGPT? And then I guess like second, why do you think the internet has kind of lost its collective mind over it?
1: This this is a wonderful question. And I'll tell you just from my perspective. So I'm a professor. So the conversation around the the department, a lot of times about ChatGPT is, can it be used to cheat on our assignments? That's a a lot of what it comes down to for us. So yes, it's been the talk of the town over here as well. So my, it, 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 when it came out, there was immediately some buzz about it, especially it it's, it brought to light not only its ability to uh, take a prompt and then generate whole paragraphs, whole essays, but computer code. And this is something that is not entirely new. You know, there's the, there's the co-pilot type features for GitHub. It's not entirely new, but it's my first time where I said, you know, I really should look into this more deeply, see what it can do. And... So I sat down with my laboratory. We were having our weekly lab meeting, and I was okay. Let's let's try it out, and it did at times reasonably well at generating code. And we we even kind of challenged it uh, to try some more complicated things, and it, at times would swing and a miss, and sometimes would make up functions that didn't exist. Um, so basically, so I sort of had this. I, I said, okay, you know what? I'm going to take a deep dive. So for me on Ch- chat dpt so i took a whole saturday and that was chat GPD day for me and i decided like okay i going to really test this out and both as a teacher and a researcher and i kind of went through the whole hype cycle i felt over the course of a couple of hours where initially i was sort of skeptical like what's going on with this and then i started getting it some to do some like write an essay about the scarlet letter like i was a ninth grader who didn't want to do their homework and then so and so it, and, it, and it did a decent job. And I started giving it progressively more difficult coding assignments, like it did my tutorial level coding assignment that I'll give the students. Like bang on right out of the box. And that and for me in robotics, that's make a simple robot that's just a swinging pendulum, and then throw a motor on it in the simulation and then control it, which is a pretty simple thing that you give to 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 starting students. And it just nailed it. It really did. And I started giving it progressively harder assignments, and I was like, "Oh my good!" Then it, up to the point where I was like, "I've always wanted to code this particular algorithm, but I've never gotten around to it. I'm gonna have Chat GPT do it. GPT do it. See what happens." And it started generating code. It was for an interior point quadratic programming solver. In case anyone's curious, it's a helpful tool for in robotics for uh, for for computing control inputs, but. That's a detail. And it spat out a bunch of code. And I was my eyes were wide with delight. Like, oh my goodness, this could change everything. And then I I put it into I copied the code, ran it, and error. I'm like, dang it, dang it. Okay. Error. That's that stinks. Okay, but however, you can ask Chat GPT to fix the error. There's an error here. Can you fix it? And it tries and it goes and it tries to fix it. And I realized, oh, it doesn't know how to fix it. And then I realized, oh my goodness. It put together something that looks like should have been this algorithm, but it had, like, fundamental limitations because it really didn't understand what it was doing. And it kind of dawned on me that uh, to, to that ChatGPT, and I, and I don't know if you, you get to bleep this, but, you know, kind of a bullshitter, okay? Uh, it, it's, it, it, that's what it is at heart. It's a, it's a very well-read or, like, well, in, like, a lot of information at its fingertips, but it's feeding you a bunch of BS, and sometimes that BS is amazingly kind of weirdly on point and it can give you working code. But it doesn't, I realize it doesn't really get that what it's putting together might not even be right. I and mean, it is blissfully unaware of this fact. And I really, and I kind of came down from the height cycle, I realized, oh, this is what it's doing. It's good at stringing together information. And as I started to read more about how transformers work, et cetera, we'll get into that. And to how ChatGPT works, this all started to make sense and started to make sense in the context of how I understand how machine learning algorithms work how, and, how, and how they function. So I am now at a point where I'm like, this is an interesting tool. This is interesting. However, I have a lot of reservations about where it's going and how it can currently be used. And you talked about Google, right? And we'll get back to your Google question right now right? And so you are a former former Google employee, Googler, is that what they call you? Yeah, Is that right? Yeah. Google, Googler? Yeah. I mean, and when people were starting to say that this is, a, 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 that this is a Google killer, because you could ask it a question, right? And it just gives you an answer in English or whatever language you want. I thought that that was interesting that Google was really threatened by that. It makes sense. However, it's got a way of just BSing answers. And um. And you might say that, yeah, well, Google also just can grab answers from anywhere that could be wrong. It could grab a website that could be a bad, like a misinformation. However, I will say if I Google something and it gives me a website of a thing, uh, of an answer, I can check that website. Who made that website? Where does it come from? With ChatGPT, all of the information gets thrown into basically a Blender and it comes out the other side as some answer, so you don't know where it came from. In fact, if you ask it, sometimes it'll just make up an answer where it came from. It's amazing. So anyway, so as we get into more about ChatGPT, that's sort of like my my current thoughts. I was like, this is, it's a phenomenal proof of concept. It can do amazing things, but can we count on it to do amazing things? And that's the big question I have.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, I think, Similarly, when it first blew up, I was, you know, pretty skeptical because I've seen other hype cycles in AI, especially with chatbots. Like I remember, I think it was Alice or something like that from Microsoft years ago. And, you know, there's been a bunch of these systems over the last like 15 years. And I'm like, ah, oh, it's just going to be like those. And then when I tried it, I, the, I was, you know, also substantially sort of wowed by it at the beginning. Um, but I do think that source attribution is... A big challenge, and and I know that uh, Microsoft is supposedly working on this, but that is, uh, I think, one of the big barriers to it being used as, you know, something like a potential replacement to, to Google. Well, getting into how ChatGPT was actually built. So it's built using a large language model, specifically a variant of the transformer architecture. Can you talk a little bit about how these models work and how was ChatGPT in particular trained?
1: So uh so ChatGPT, uh the 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 GPT, the, the key part is the the generative pre-trained transformer, right? And you zeroed in on the on the transformer part. And 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 for those not familiar with uh with 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 neural network architectures, you know, that's 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 the flavor of the day. I feel like there's this zoo of of interesting neural network architectures, you know. Before it was like recurrent neural networks at one point or long-term, short-term memories. Uh, memory networks. And they, and it feels like every year or so, another cool architecture comes out that fixes a lot of the problems of the previous one. So it's a fast moving field. I remember I was actually at a a workshop of a bunch of folks who were working. It was a kind of a general, uh, like uh, a meeting for a lot of people working on robotics and self-driving cars. Um, and I remember I was talking with someone who was more of a deep learning person. He was like, Transformers, I, I'm generally skeptical, but transformers are pretty good. And so, what do the transformers do? Well, so transformers were introduced in a paper uh, which has a beautifully uh, simple title called uh, "Attention is All You Need" by, by, by Google, your 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 alumni alumni organization, you know, uh, um, where basically they were trying to solve among other problems that if you have something that's trying to generate, let's say language, right? Trying to let's say translate. Like a uh, um, from uh, from one human language to another, it's trying to translate French to English. Okay, that there is a limited amount of ability of previous methods to look back at previous words in a sentence when you're doing a translation. Um, which you, uh, it's sort of the, the translation methods were largely looking at the previous word and the current word and saying, well, how should I translate this word? Now, that could be a problem, though, when you're trying to translate a language where you switch the order of words. Uh, you know, it, so like it, 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 in, um, in the European languages, the adjective tends to come after the noun, unlike in English where we have this cool way of putting cool before the word way. Um, so that was a problem for things like translations. Now, among one of the, one of the many things that Transformers fixed is they had this, whole, this thing called the attention layer particularly something called self-attention, where it's able to very selectively pay attention to certain words in a sentence that came before it, sentences before, you know, know, um, maybe in paragraphs before. I think the limit currently with new transformers uh, with ChatGPT is something like a few thousand words maybe. So I think it's something like the limit right now. That was a big innovation, um, which means that it can keep track of a plot line in a short, like in a little tiny short story it's writing, right? In addition to keeping track of maybe what the adjective was earlier in the sentence. And that's super useful for chatbots because if, if I, if I ask you an example, I saw um, of, of, of something a chatbot would need to discern um, would be if I type into the chatbot, um, excuse me, server, can I have the check versus the server just crashed? What does server mean? Well, we know that based on the context that I meant both the either the waiter or the waitress, or I meant the computer server. And that's dependent upon the context of the rest of the sentence. So the idea of being able to pay attention selectively to different words that had happened elsewhere is critical to having a good response. And so that and a few other Changes such as uh, the positional data <laughs> of words, etc., is what allows transformers to be such effective chatbots. And what they'll do is that they, they will have a, a transformer like that. They have an input architecture and an output act architecture. One is where you send in your prompt, and then it uses attention and all this other stuff in order to uh, in order to figure out what you're trying to say, at least some approximation thereof, and then it generates a response and the way it generates is that it's using the, the same kind of similar kind of structure, but it is picking out words one at a time, boom, 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 boom. And it's trying to predict of all the words at my disposal, they call them tokens in in, in this language, which of these words, tokens, is most likely to give me a good response. And so it'll choose the one with the highest probability roughly and say, that's my next word until eventually it comes up with the token called end. And then it ends the sentence, right? It ends the response. And that's the generative part. It generates this response. And it's trained. Uh, and So that's 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 number one. That's the architecture of how it's put together, all right? So uh, if you want to sound cool, you know about uh, when you talk about Transformers, you talk about self-attention, it's like, oh, self-attention. Cool stuff. Um, and uh, um, in terms of how it's trained, it's trained on gobs of internet data, of, of text from the internet. I think we're talking about terabytes, I believe, chat GPT was trained on. And it has a ton of different examples of, of people talking and, uh, on the internet. And shocker that that's the case. And so, and if you have a neural network that is, that is scalable, meaning that we can computationally train it using uh, our best computational training techniques, and you have gobs of data that tends to be a pretty good recipe for amazing results. And that gets you a lot of the way there. So a lot of uh, uh, um, a lot of what's done is generate is training this network off of existing human data. There are additional things after that um, you, you also want to uh, there's uh, is a layer of reinforcement learning where you're giving it a reward, where you have some humans who are actually trying to you know, interface with the chatbot and tell them more or less, were these good or bad results? That way you can sort of craft the language model so it gives you the types of responses that you want. And that is no easy feat, but they found a way to do that. Um, and the result is the chat GPT you see today. That's roughly how it works.
0: Yeah, so there's a couple of things that you mentioned there. So one of them was this idea that, you know, the limit of how far back it can look is, you know, maybe a thousand words or uh, or so. So that's probably great for, you know, compiling in, an email or, you know, I don't know, a tweet or some sort of short response. But if you were to actually write, you know, a Stephen King length novel, then it's probably going to fall apart in that case. Like you're going to lose the thread of the plot. Right. But you also mentioned this, you know, training data, this like using the internet data, the gobs of data. And I've seen, you know, a number of, you know, articles and people like expressing concern essentially over using internet data. And, you know, there's privacy concerns, but I think one of the, the big concerns that comes up, especially really around any kind of model training is limitations in terms of like bias or ethical considerations. So what are some of your thoughts in terms of, you know, relying essentially on internet data and the potential problems that can lead to uh, like a bias. I mean, if we search Google and I get a result, even if the response, the the article is biased, I at least know who the person was. Whereas in ChatGPT, I'm basically getting essentially some response that I don't really know who produced it.
1: Yeah, I mean, so I'm sure there are people who are are thinking of really clever solutions to this kind of problems. I mean, one that might come to mind is that if you there is the layer of there is the element of tra, of sort of retraining the network based on user feedback the reinforcement learning part and that you could have some principled what one thing you could try to do is have some principled bias detector that you could try to train it on and that's that I can't I won't say that would be easy at least that might be sort of a band-aid, a patch if you will to take what is being spit out and then trying to make sure that it's sort of rebalanced. To re- reflect what what you would determine as a bias detection. Now that's a bit of a patch, as far as I'm concerned. Now, the other part, it, the the pessimist in me, let's just say, or maybe maybe the uh, constructive critic in me. How about that? We'll go with that today. Um, is that it is being tra- because it's being trained on existing human uh, human interactions um, ex- almost exclusively in terms of how it's generating its results, it that does limit its ability to reason. Um, it's sort of reasoning by probability. It has seen these words strung together and it's able to generate some kind of structure around them, which is pretty, which is very impressive. Uh, but there is no reference to some external truth or reality. That's why you can get it to say on occasion that one plus one equals three or in in, some, in it doesn't, it's not that simple. Like it's pretty good at detecting that one plus one doesn't equal three, but like if I could actually ask, ask it in a convoluted way, uh, it, give, it can I can sort of prompt it to give me an answer that tells me in effect that one plus one equals three, that it doesn't have some underlying principles to say, this is what a tr- is true of a true response. And it lacks a model of, it's a great model of language it seems, but not a great model of reality, which is what people seem to want to use it for. Um, So uh, I think that if we're taught, this is why when people talk about using it as a Google replacement, I was like, I was kind of surprised. I always thought it would be the kind of thing, a chatbot, and this may be, this is my bias. I'm curious what your response was from back in the Alice days, Sean, when people were talking about this. Uh, But like, I always thought this would be like, oh, an interface to deliver sort of pre-set information. Like imagine like you had a chat gpt that was the equivalent of the phone operator when you when you call when you have to call your internet service provider or something like that to like you know handle your bill right so that way you're talking you're talking to a machine but it's a more conversational machine but the information it's grabbing from is from like a a very clear like authoritative source like this is the company policy this is the policy on you know doing these kind of refunds this is the policy for repairs Instead, it's, it's it's almost like people are trying to use it as a one true knowledge of everything, and I find that to be a, a it's not ready for that. Uh, I, I, when I tell people one, uh, and I'm and I'm sure it's close. Uh, if I'm just going to give my my personal opinion on there, it, it's I think people mistake it for being wise in that it's so good at imitating the speech patterns of people, and that's it's excellent at that. Uh, that people will say, half-jokingly, saying, I don't know the answer to this question. I'll ask ChatGPT. I'm sure it knows. um, But in fact, it knows how to give you an answer. That sounds like an answer that you want to hear. But uh, in terms of the bias question and all these ethical concerns, it doesn't have an ethical set of of principles. And in a way, I have to congratulate the ChatGPT team and in my opinion, they did a reasonably good job of patching it up, so it doesn't do too many horrible things. Like it's like I, when I, when I, I would hear rumors of what it was like when they were training it, like the when when like chat like the chatbots would like act like psychologists and give let's just say less than optimal mental health advice when prompted, and they've somehow managed. I think I haven't seen too many horror stories about that off of ChatGPT, but those are patches. It's still constructing language from examples. And in my opinion, if you want to get to the point where you want to trust this thing as some big source of information, it's gotta have some set of principles beyond monkey see, monkey do.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think one of the challenges that some of the you know older systems that have like tried to do things around like chatbots and um, is they are you know learning, they're basically their training's ongoing. So the downside of that is someone who's malicious can basically go and train it to do something like ridiculous, and that's been kind of the downfall of some of the the past techniques that have been used. And so you, you you brought up this idea of like you know it was surprising to you that people were talking about this as like a you know like a threat to Google because of these problems with the system that you're talking about. There's you know lack of source attribution. It sometimes just makes stuff up that kind of looks right but is not really right, which in some ways is even worse. Um, but I think some of the practical applications that I've seen and uh, and actually have used even for myself is more around like being the starting point for generating something, like generating an email or maybe generating a summary. It's more like vertical-specific or application-specific uses of it rather than, hey, I want to know the answer to this question. And I've actually seen, for example, I looked up, uh, I think you really start to see the... The cracks in chat gpt when you start to ask it more sort of obscure questions so if you ask it kind of general knowledge stuff it's probably pretty good but when you start to go you know into things that are a little more specific a little more niche you get some pretty crazy answers i've experienced that a little bit myself but what are some of your thoughts i guess on
1: some of the practical uses of of the chat gpt uh, system today and that's a great question. I'm glad you're going here because I don't want to sound too much of a, a Johnny Raincloud, Debbie Downer, or something like that. I, I do see potential applications. I mean, like I, I, you know, I'm in the field of of trying to make computers make smart decisions. So I, I so I, I like I want to be an optimist here, and I think that in terms of the uses, like I, I think that there's a lot of use potentially for the coding generation, for instance. Like, like, and I this is just as a person who does a a, a fair bit of coding. Um, Thankfully, you know on, on a good day, my students do the coding, but you know sometimes I have to do it too. And where a lot of it's just busy work. A lot of it's just the same thing you've done 50 times and it's, and, and, chat, and chat GPC is, is probably you know thousands of examples of it. Just generate me the skeleton of this code or just the, this one little block that does this one thing. And that's I've already seen people um, uh, you know obviously this has been incorporated into GitHub. You know, that that service is available, and I, I I have made strong use of it. But I could see the potential for something like that, and that's just encoding. And I think that what will bear out is how useful people find it in practice. A lot of times, uh, I, I fall victim to this. I I just bought a new widget, you know, and I and I I swear I, this is I'm going to use this all the time, and I, and then, you know it's shiny and new. I love it. It's going to make everything nicer for me. And over time, I realize not as useful as I thought. So we'll see how it uh, how it how it handles that part of the cycle. I, I hear the the, the uh, some of, one of the lead Python developers. He you know I think he claims to use it all the time. Which if if they if they keep using it, I, I I'm open to to that kind of thing. And that's coding. Uh, but you could do the same thing for emails, right? Uh, and so let me let me sort of broad stroke it. You know things that are relatively low stakes, with a lot of busy work, where you have a lot of prior examples. Are just great for something like a generative model for this. That's that's awesome, right? Uh it's kind of like I, I I when you go to get a, like an automatic email response, you know, you can just say, hey, thanks. Oh yeah, that's great, thanks, right? What if it had a smarter response available for you, you know, where you click up from a few of those as like a suggested auto complete for an email? That'd be awesome. I can totally see something like that becoming super great and just being a part of Microsoft's productivity software, right? Um where it's mostly when people try to use these systems where the cost of failure becomes increasingly high and um that, that that's where um especially i'm in mean, robotics you know we want to put robot you know these these algorithms in in meat space where we live and we don't want them falling on us or accidentally puncturing us kind of thing yeah uh, that, that's 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 where we worry about it i'm sure we'll get to that but But uh, I think that those, but I think, and um, I've heard people uh, use it for things that are, again, low stakes, uh, cost of failure is low as sort of a jumping off point for like, you know, fiction. You know, it's almost like a, it's like a prompt uh, for you. If you're like, you know, if you're like an improv comic or you just want to write on a thing, it's like like a random source of, of interesting inspiration to fill in the gaps. Things where you can, let's just say, you know, sort of BS your way. Through, right, uh, that's really good for that. So I'd say those are the good applications. I, I, I do fear there are some bad applications, but you know I don't want to be too negative today. Uh, but I'm sure that the that that you know things like spreading inform misinformation, I think could be of huge use for a, a chat bot. You know, it's already supposed to be um, not 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 obeying you know sort of underlying facts. So you could use it to do that, right? Um, or cheat on exams, but <sighs> <Yeah. laughs> something that, gets, that concerns me. Yeah, uh, but but I, but, I, but those are the positive applications. Just like eliminating some of the drudgery, uh, the overhead, the uncreative overhead of the things we have to do every day. Yeah, one of
0: the things I've been thinking about is if the ChatGPT or similar systems that come along are using essentially internet in like. You know, I don't know, things on Reddit, for example, like dialogue of responses in in websites and so forth to train on. But then we imagine a world, let's say fast forward 10 years, where Microsoft and Google and all these different applications essentially have some sort of chat GPT-like system baked into them so that we can just like auto-respond to those things. But then essentially the training ground for these systems become the data that was generated by the system. We enter a world where, you know, essentially only a very limited amount of information is actually like uniquely created by a person. And most of it's somehow assisted or completely generated by the model. And then you're kind of running out of stuff to to actually train it with that's actually human
1: generated. Yeah, yeah. I mean, so these models, in my opinion, everyone struggles for analogies for chat GPT and these these large language models. I, I think it's a skilled interpolator Right of, of 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 human knowledge we've already generated, um, less so an extrapolator you know, of coming up with some newfound knowledge or newfound technique or uh, it's 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 taking the data that it has and stitching stitching things together it already has uh, into something into a response. Um, so yes, it, theoretically, if this is a closed system of information, we would have a very stale. Uh, world of information if it was all generated by chat gpt's i i I have less of a pessimistic view on that uh of of that kind of outcome because what i think it would do is free us up and potentially free us up to actually write the things we care about or things we are creative about i mean i i loathe having to respond to just a pile of emails I, what I wouldn't give just to say okay I, I get the gist of this thank you all right yes 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 but the stuff I'm excited about I mean I, I mean I would still I could focus on that and so I'm trying to think of an analogy to things in the past things that we take for granted like now um, like I'm sure there are people who are mad at the typewriter um, because I'm sure it took away some of the artistry of writing in longhand you know I um and and sure I'm sure it did but you know there are still times where I write in longhand these days and it's cuz it's something I really care about I'm writing a thank you note to someone who I think it is and or uh I will maybe write my own font <laughs> you know when it's something I really want it to be special and mine it's just the things that I don't care what the font is <laughs> or what the script looks like that it that the computer or the typewriter has replaced So I think i am more come to an argument of of, of focus. Where do we, you know, let's call it attention, just to bring it back to our previous discussion. What do we pay attention to with our limited uh, executive function of our brains? And so I'm optimistic that if we can get it to work reliably for low stake situations, that's what we can do with such a technology.
0: Yeah, I think that's a great point. I mean, I think with any sort of new innovation and technology, there's always uh, a lot of initial reaction of, oh, well, you know, this is going to make this obsolete or this is a threat to, you know, jobs. And a lot of times it's really about making people more efficient so that they can actually focus on things that are, you know, more complex tasks. I mean, even when it comes to programming, a lot of programming today Your stitch, you're offloading some responsibilities of coding to APIs or libraries that you know take care of things, so that you can can focus on building something new that's going to be interesting and and innovative and so forth. So you don't have to go and build like an auth system. You don't have to build a database from scratch and and so on. Uh, So if I don't have to respond to all my emails, uh, that would be fantastic. (laughs) Free me up to to do more podcasting. so you touched on this a little bit earlier uh, or a couple of times about essentially people using this for cheating. So both my sisters are teachers, and I know there's been a lot of concern over students essentially being able to use this to write a book report or, you know, whatever it is. So what are, you know, is that a legitimate concern? And then maybe, you know, what are, you know, your university
1: thinking about how to how to prevent stuff like that? So it, it is certainly the talk of the educators in my life as well. I mean, I, I, again, I'm less apocalyptic about it than I think I've heard some other folks. I mean, we've, we've had to fight the cheating wars in so many different ways over, you know, over, over uh, the decades. I mean, when I was in school, you know, cliff notes were a thing that you could go to, you know, it, 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 to, to give you summaries of, of novels. So that way you wouldn't have to actually read The Scarlet Letter. Uh, I literally fell asleep with the book on my face and the scarlet letter. Maybe I'll enjoy it more as an adult. I don't know. But the, so there is, so we, so people found a way to write more, uh, more in-depth questions, right? We had to adapt our methods um, so that way you couldn't just answer it with a cliff, with cliff notes, right? Um, And the same thing's going to happen with ChatGPT. I mean, it is going to force some kind of innovation and adaptation amongst educators, um, things that would have just required people like by, like by, like by coding a pendulum assignment that I would give to my lab students i, I know that if i give that to them they could have just chat gpt would um in the past, uh, uh so there are t- so we would have to adopt some techniques in order to actually um test the students knowledge of what you actually want them to learn um <laughs> uh there are uh so so i mean obviously in class Evaluations are are, are are very valuable in that way. I mean, that, that's the, the simple solution, but it isn't always simple to implement at scale uh, for the size of classes. Some assignments just take a while. Um, so you might have to ask more obscure, for take-home assignments, more obscure questions. Be very specific in what you're asking for. I actually found a, a a weird one weird trick. Am I, am I clickbait now? I don't know. One weird trick. Try this out for yourself if you're for the, if you're playing with ChatGPT at home. Uh, I tried to give it a writing prompt, but it gave it a very an exact word limit. Like I said, like write something in like 27 words, uh, a, a response, and it just flubbed phenomenally. Maybe wouldn't do it every time. Just try this at home. Try. I could be wrong. I'm curious if it works for you, but it makes sense. When you give ChatGPT a weird constraint, that it would have a difficult difficult time, um, and I think that, and this is actually kind of related back to my research a little bit. You know, when I'm doing robot control, I'm trying to say, "Hey, algorithm, come up with a robot controller that's going to make my robot, uh, you know, do a, you know, you know, walk to the end of the room and then do like a a John Travolta, you know, disco pose, right?" Um, that's uh, it's it, unless you're very careful how you set up your algorithm, it might, it can have a hard time figuring it out because there's lots of things that can go wrong along the way that would prevent you from getting hitting the disco pose, and unless ChatGPT is really uh smart about counting its words along the way, which I I it is it I don't think it explicitly does that. It has to kind of learn to implicitly do that. It tends to lose track of that kind of prompt, in my opinion. Um. I think I tried it like maybe to ask it to summarize the Scarlet letter in like exactly 10 words. I gave it like 10 tries and it got like down to nine somehow. I don't know how it did it, but it got, it got close. So anyway, so weird, So adding some weird constraints to the problem sometimes can, can, uh, um, can help. I mean, and you can – and I think that what it comes down to though, I mean, what you really would love to get – ask yourself is what you really want the students to know. And how do you test that thing? Because because no longer can you just rely on the fact that words are on a page in the form of a sentence is sufficient evidence that this was written. Um, so, I mean, so how do you test for insight? Um, I've done exams where I've had people generate code at home. And then in class during a Zoom session, I had I, I told them to change their code to do something else like something, you know, something related. And that was just a test to make sure that they, this is pre Chat GPT, but this was just a test to make sure that they didn't copy it from other students or something and that they had to know what their code did and explain something about their code. Um, so maybe there's ways to do, to test the core of what you're asking beyond what you did. But we do, I, again, I don't know, but I think we're still all figuring this out. It's a... Uh, uh, I, I I imagine there's a lot of people right now having the same similar kinds of discussions in departments across the globe.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean I think that even computer science departments had to adapt a lot when the internet became and, and suddenly source code was all over the internet. Like you couldn't just ask somebody like implement a merge sort because I can go and look up merge sort in any language that I want and copy and paste it from the internet. And I'm done with my homework assignment in, in two minutes, but you can take a question like that. And like you're suggesting adapt it, make it a, you know, a little bit more specific than just a like a routine algorithm or something like that. And I'm sure similar techniques work for written uh, you know, book reports and so forth.
1: Yeah, and we'll go. Yeah, and just, just, to, just, to, just to sort of put another little twist on that question. I mean, you know, people've been able to cheat for years by just paying someone to cheat on exam for them. I mean, that gets a little bit trickier on the technical stuff. Uh, but there were there were services people would pay for to write their thesis. I, I, I remember I read a wonderful article. I think in the Chronicles of Higher Education, which was sort of the private confessions of a professional cheat, and uh, they would get paid. Write a thesis. So long as there was no math, I remember was the constraint that that particular person had. And I mean, that was always available. But what changes here is the availability. <laughs> you know, it's like you don't have to pay somebody. Uh, you, 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 so it's, it's it's more it's it's more freely available. So I'm confident that we'll find reasonable countermeasures uh, to even though it won't weed out everything, at least it it, it would discourage and make it more uh, uh, more tricky to cheat. So I I, I Exactly what that form that will take, we will see.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I want to start to talk a little bit about, you know, your area of expertise, robotics. Um, you know, we touched on it a little bit, but do you see an overlap between essentially
1: the science behind technology like ChatGPT and, and robotics? Uh, the I, Definitely. And it is an interesting analogy. And one thing I got to say is that the, the general AI slash machine learning field has you know kudos to you all kudos to you friends you know you you you're 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 making such wonderful strides every other field i'm sure is at least partly jealous uh not speaking for myself of course but uh, but like robotics is coming a long way but i will say there are a lot of people who thought that oh we have these algorithms doing crazy things like they're generating ai seinfeld on uh, on twitch uh which and they, like it's 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 a kind of a goofy TV show, but it is a TV show on Twitch. Endless Seinfeld that was being auto-generated, and yet we can't have a robot make us a sandwich. You know, we, we like it's it's um, robotics is progressing, but it's still far behind. Um, that said, some of the parallels are interesting when like when we talk about ChatGPT. That, in my opinion, one of the big limitations is it doesn't have a strong grasp of reality, or if any grasp of reality at all. It's not trained on any on any Physics of, of the world it's in, or any actual experience of the world it's in, just in the language that describes what people have done in the past, and that's it's it's a model, but it's imperfect. Uh, it, 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 does, it lacks a model of the reality it's actually living in. Um, this is something that we is, a, I think, a really hot topic in robotics right now because there are, I would say, <laughs> this is my this is this is my take on robotics as a researcher. sort of two camps in terms of robot control. Um, how do you control a robot? One uh, one is uh, model-free and the other one is model-based. And basically, does your controller have written in it somewhere the physics of your robot and the environment that it's in, okay? And if you do a reinforcement learning method, you're probably model-free. Like you've, you've trained your robot, maybe in a simulation with a lot of experience. You try lots of trial and error and use a deep neural network to construct a controller, to uh, um, to come up with a better with a better result, and those folks, just in the last handful of years, I would say the last three years, have made enormous strides. I mean, I work in legged robotics, and I and and some colleagues uh, at my alma mater, which was Oregon State, uh, in the lab where I graduated from. After uh, the deep learning boom, <laughs> they, they 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 applied deep learning to a legged robot to break the land speed record. For a bipedal robot, the, the world's fastest robot, hundred meter dash, and they did it using model-free reinforcement learning. They had a computer simulation. They gave it a lot of ex- a lot of opportunities to try to come up with new ways to run, and they put it on the physical robot, and it ran a hundred meter dash. It's incredible. It's incredible, right? And so the uh, so the control policy, as we call it, sort of the, the the smarts of control, are all embedded in a trained neural network. Really cool, really cool stuff. Um, now, it is, though, limited largely to the to what it's been trained on. I mean, it does a good job, but it's still limited to the situations that it's been trained on to try. So the model-based folks, which I find myself a little bit more in that camp, is yes, it's great to have a beautiful neural network that's trained to handle all these situations. But what if you're in a new situation? What if things have changed? What if your robot suddenly, one of its motors is kind of burnt out if you only have half the torque in that motor? Um. So, uh, or you're suddenly stepping on a new material, let's say you're trudging through sand all of a sudden, and you've never seen sand before, um, it would be sure great if you had some ability to model the physics of that system. And um, as a result, it have the ability to reason on board the robot how to change its behavior as a result. So that is theoretically very nice. Um, the challenge there is that um, it's, it's actually a lot of uh, computation on board to think and reason all the time with a the robot. The, the method that I think is most applicable if people want a buzzword in robotics is called model predictive control or MPC, which is sort of the thought of, hey, if you have a mathematical understanding of the physics of this robot – You can be clever about your computations and figure out a way to predict how your robot's going to behave in an environment and make a smart decision based on that. And so those are sort of, I'd say, the two camps in terms of robot control out there. And where this sort of applies in terms of analogy is like, man, chat GPT, taking a bunch of data and using a neural network to stitch it together into an interesting solution. And man, it could do some amazing things, right? But it doesn't have a fundamental understanding of the reality that it's in. So that can lead to situations where it makes silly mistakes, right? Um, And it's partly the reason why I feel in the future, I would love to see these methods have a better model of the world we live, not unlike a robot.
0: Yeah, so is there also hybrid systems in robotics where you're using essentially the model to understand, you know, some of the the physics so they can adapt on the fly but also using like reinforcement learning to build uh you know the initial version
1: of the essentially the the learning algorithm yeah, sure yeah and, and that's and that's natural whenever whenever you have people in any almost in any field of, of, of engineering like man if only i could put chocolate and peanut butter together there's someone trying to put chocolate and peanut butter together right so it's uh it's so there are model-based reinforcement learning techniques that people are are working with i'd say it's uh it's it's still i think you know in its infancy, that one of the, uh, but, I, it, but I, I, say, I, I should say that its infancy is still pretty new, but it's can be pretty exciting. The trick is how you get those things to play together because you have, on one hand, you have this, uh, you know, this neural network based, uh, the, uh, this neural network based uh, uh, approach where you're training neural networks. And one of the things about neural nets is that um, you want that every single function that you have at your disposal, you want a nice derivative of it. You know, not to bring too much calculus into this, right? But you want to you want to have a nice, nice smooth curve for that mathematical function. It's defined by a bunch of by a bunch of sur- like, like the lines or surfaces that are all smooth. And if you know the slope of that line smoothness, you know line smoothness is that that's your derivative, right? For those who you know, maybe missed a who who hadn't lived calculus in a while. And so now, however, if on the other hand you're doing this model based control, which is doing all this advanced reasoning on the fly. How do you take a derivative of that reasoning? And that's been the challenge. How do you come up with a smooth curve that describes how that reasoning responds to whatever situation you're in? And there are people working on that exact problem, that how do you take this derivative of the result of some planning algorithm? And so there are people working in that space. And I think that's really interesting. Um, so there, that would be an interesting chocolate and peanut butter solution that I'd be really on board with to really both leverage the sort of uncanny way that neural networks can just stitch together a bunch of information and come up with a, with an answer with the principle-based reasoning that you get from having a model understanding of your reality.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and imagine like if you think about like humans is probably some combination, like, a, like a, a baby that's just born understands When they touch something hot, that it you know hurts. You have these sensors, basically. That is your model of reality. But then you're also learning all the time, so that you can learn new skills and adapt as well. So I I guess that's kind of like the goal. With that would be the perfect system, perhaps for
1: for robotics. Yeah, I mean, for for sure. I mean, just just I swear this is a coincidence. You brought that up. I swear I didn't put it up to you. That's exact. But that's the exact analogy I give when I talk about my own research. Right. Some of the methods we're working with, it's trying to blend a bit of learning with this model-based sort of reasoning and planning on the fly, where um, one of the things about the deep learning methods that need a ton of data, you know, you know, chat GPT is chain trained on, you know, uh, like terabytes of text. That's a lot of text. (laughs) <laughs> it's a, um, I, I mean, and it, and it takes a while to train the model. I actually don't know how long it takes, took the tra- to train ChatGPT, but I imagine, you know, more than takes the time it takes to go out for coffee, I would assume, right? Um, but however, the baby touches the hot stove, it doesn't need to train this neural network for days to realize maybe not do that again. And that, whatever I do, I'm not going to touch that stove, even if I have to do other things. And so that's the kind of work that I'm doing right now is where we do what we call low-shot learning meaning very few examples of, of trying to learn the thing that caused you to fail or have a bad bad experience and build a very simple machine learning model based upon those few experiences and then plug that into your model-based reasoning, which allows you to think on the fly as to how to respond to other new scenarios. So touch the hot stove, but you can still have to do stuff. So you know, like whatever else you're doing in your kitchen, you know, you're mixing the spoon around, just don't touch that hot stove again. And so uh yeah, so that's so so I feel like so that sort of touches on one of the other things that that makes Chat GPT so great is the huge amount of data. And if you need to respond to very few amounts very little data, you might want to use a different kind of technique.
0: Yeah. I mean that's kind of what I was mentioning earlier, where I think you start to see some of the problems with Chat GPT when you ask these more niche questions because it probably has limited amount of data actually, you know, be imp- inputs to the model. So back to your research with some of this like limited example training. How do, can you talk a little bit about like how, how does that actually work in practice?
1: So so sometimes it's incredibly simple. I mean, in, uh, the uh, what's what's the uh, um, simplest machine learning algorithm I can think of is uh, you know a, a linear fit on Excel. You know, <laughs> in my opinion, that's machine learning. And so if you have like I mean, three data points. What can you do with that information and you know maybe draw a line through it maybe you know throw you know throw some bell curves on it right and so when you're incredibly limited you have to deal with some really low order methods like it could be that simple and then um there's sort of a sliding scale that you can use depending on how much data you have you have almost no data you know draw a line (laughs) just like that's machine learning for you Uh, if you have a little more data And you're trying to get a curve i mean there are things called like a gaussian process regressions gprs and gps and uh those are those are nice for a certain scale of data now those don't scale up um, to the kinds of scale uh, stuff you get for a neural net you might have to go up to a neural net when you have you know thousands or tens of thousands of data points and if and if you get more than that you might have to go to a deep neural net at that point that might be useful um so there isn't a one size fits all problem for learning in the context of robotics or anything else. Um, And I think that that's what, that's why there's this beautiful zoo of different um, uh, machine learning, uh, machine learning architectures, neural network architectures. I mean, I think that the, uh, I part of, part of me maybe in another life would love to experience the world of being a deep learning, deep learning architect where I know, Oh, you know, i throw in an auto encoder in here. It's like, a, it's like, it's like I'm cooking. It's like, I'm like a recipe. It's like, you know what? I could use a little a dash of salt, dash of pepper. Oh, here's my ReLU layer. You know, it's, it's, it's like, so, um, so, so I think that part of the artistry of that is no having an idea of what's good for what. And um, so, so that depends upon how much data you need and, you know, what's used for.
0: Yeah. And I imagine uh, the, also the computational complexity is a factor as well like if you're dealing with robotics or you know autonomous vehicles or something like that where reaction time might be really important you can't be doing large something that's like going to to uh cause too many thinking cycles essentially when reaction time is so important because it could mean uh both like destruction of the robot but also potential harm to uh, to a person
1: i feel like i've unintentionally steered you into my 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 uh, work i'm 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 i'm, I'm buried in right now I, as, a, as a faculty member. I, so like I, I have, uh, my laboratory is, work, is pressed up against a uh, a conference deadline and we'd love to get all our papers out. And all of our papers this term are uh, for, for this push, I realize they're all on this exact problem is how fast can you get an answer? And so like we, we're trying to get every aspect of the computation uh, from you know the data collection to the learning of a model from that data to the using of that learned model in a control calculation all down to a millisecond or two so i mean that's sort of the, the sort of arbitrary standard in robotics for how fast you would want something and be quote unquote real time a lot of the time is uh, at a kilohertz so a thousand hertz so a millisecond thereabouts um, that's what we try to aim for um which, which is it's funny because, that, because in, 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 and we're dealing with like dynamic robots. We're talking about robots that if you don't make the right decision, it's going to fall down in a fraction of a second. So you better know where you're going to want to put your foot if you just got pushed or you're about to walk into grandpa. You know, you want a reverse course uh, or a drone's going to flop on its face if you don't get the right calculation. Um, you know, so a lot of the methods that, that we use um, nowadays, in robotics, weren't developed by robotics folks. They were they were developed in applications where you had a little bit more time to make decisions, such as chemical engineering power, chemical engineering plants. Uh, that's actually a, where a lot of our algorithms got developed, uh, where, because they, they could take an, uh, minutes to an hour to maybe make a decision as to how to handle the mixing of this particular chemical into the other chemical. So they were some of the fir- our our forefathers or foremothers of these algorithms was we chemical or our chemistry friends. And so uh, because so much of the, uh, of the choice of algorithm for us is, dri- is driven by the, how long it takes to compute. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: And I think, you know, we, you're kind of working in like two areas that I think uh, people who are not, you know, well-versed in those areas of like AI robotics, there is this, often like negative reaction to those things. And we talked a little bit about this earlier, you know, threat to jobs. I think in robotics, it's not only threat to jobs, but, you know, pot- potentially physical threat to people. So I guess, what are your thoughts on, on, on the potential impact of robotics to people's jobs or, or, you know, even someone's uh, personal safety? Because I think whenever we see those like crazy robotics videos, of some you know, robot doing a backflip or something like that, you know, everyone's like, Oh, Oh my God, crazy. It, it, it's time to, you know, Uh, abandoned ship the robots are taking over uh but it feels like just based on our conversation and i've heard you speak before we're quite a ways away from something like that ever actually happening
1: Sure, we are. And I'll answer your question, I guess, in the small scale first, then sort of zoom out to the larger scale. So let's let's take that example you just talked about. Like We hear about the people, you're probably referring to the Boston Dynamics uh, videos of the robots, which are tremendous. You know, they do a wonderful job at Boston Dynamics uh, uh, of making these, uh, particularly for their humanoid, uh, Atlas. That's the one that's doing all the backflips and dancing to music. Um, it, it's it's, a, it's a, they do wonderful proof of concepts, and they're, and they're selling their spot robots right now, which are their quadrupeds. They're selling them for companies for actual use in uh, people use them in facilities to inspect their power plants, that kind of thing. Um, uh, it, it's very easy as, a, as an understandable for people to watch those videos and think, "Wow, robots! They are here. They are here, and they're going to do anything that I can." Uh, one, you got to remember, this is a demo. And uh, I, I'm sure that anyone—I mean, you work in the tech startup business. I'm sure you 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 all know what it's like to put together a demo and maybe to see a demo for another company and say, "Okay, how often does that really work?" Uh, you know, that, and, and it's not—and it's not dissimilar with Boston Dynamics. They're actually very upfront. I respect the company, and that they will actually show you how often the robot doesn't work, and uh, which at least at least give you some examples to show we got more 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 space to go. Um, additionally. It's you got to be be mindful of that. Robots have their limitations, and a big one, especially for legged robots, I can speak with a little bit more authority on this as a legged roboticist, is like things like power consumption. Um, you don't see these robots operating for very long, a lot of the time. There's a reason why the videos are short, and it's not just because of YouTube engagement. It's um, and and they, and they will tell you. I mean, like I believe I need to find the article, but they talked about the battery limitations on their humanoid Atlas doing. Uh, a dance for I think the Do You Love Me song from uh, from whichever decade that was from, and they had to expand the battery capacity to make it through the whole song. I believe is the story because it uses so much power. So there are often hidden limitations to the robots that you see in your YouTube videos that prevents them from being ta- from taking over your job in the near term. Okay, but that's that's the sort of the small scale. But let's write that up to a large scale. Okay, let's assume that um, for for industry X. For random in for this in for a particular industry, there seems to be a robot that does the thing, and and, and let's say they worked out a lot of the technical details where it's reliable and it's actually fieldable with the practical limitations, uh, you know that that, that it has. Um, I, and I'm not an economist, I should I should preface this, but like you know we have somehow managed without with automation over the years to find new jobs for people. Now that does not to to minimize that finding that if you for some reason you happen to be in the direct path of the exact thing being automated that, that's not an easy thing to have to change a job so this is like a worst case scenario we but we always find jobs in related sectors that people are used, that, that 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 people that um that, that that we need people to do uh I mean we I mean how many people were farmers. At the turn of at the turn of uh, of, of the 20th century, you know, as, as opposed to now, vast min- minority of people are farmers these days. Because a lot of farming has been automated. I mean, now, now, I mean, now you have a job, Sean, that I'm sure was not in the uh, twinkle of the eyes of the early 1900s folks. New jobs of different types get made. That's a, just more of a general response. And I will say another angle of it is that actually very bad at predicting whose jobs will be replaced by automation um I, 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 a lot of times people think like oh you know like you know, autonomous cars they're right around the corner um drivers are gonna be uh truck drivers are gonna be out of the business you know at, you know we're still waiting on that you know it's, it's a, uh and th- and things like that so it's it's actually very hard to predict what jobs are going to be replaced so um, I, 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 think imminent panic by, um, for the most part, I think is, uh, is, it's pretty unfounded it's un, until it, the, we really mature the technology and see what it's really good for. Even then the impact on the economy is hard to predict.
0: Yeah. I mean, there's so many things that, you know, don't even going back to the, you know, moon landing. Uh, I think if you asked anybody in 1969, where would we would be today, we'd all be exploring deep space have multiple, you know, human habitations on other planets, and we're not really any for, that much further ahead than we were in, in 1969 during a, a space exploration. And I think also your point about demoware is a really good one. I remember when I went to Google I/O in 2018. Google had demoed, I forget the name, the exact thing, but it's basically the Google assistant goes and calls up, uh, you know, like a barbershop and schedules uh, a haircut appointment. And everyone was blown away by the realism of the voice and the pauses that were happening. I'm still, you know, we're all still waiting for that to actually be a release product It's great in a demo, but I think it, in terms of actually being a releasable product, it's, I, I, to my knowledge, they didn't even test it in it with you know, real people at any point. So.
1: Yeah, it's a tough world. I mean, to get something to function in our reality is hard. I mean, the, I mean, I, 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 you're, you're, you're much more in the business world than I am. I can happily toil away in my laboratory, and you know, and, and never, never have to sell a product in my life. Uh, but the, but, but if you, but if to, to cross that gulf of a, a proof of concept to implementation to market. Is, is it the valley of death is that the phrase for is there what is the value? I think there's a phrase for it or something like that. It's just that all, or any where so many things can go wrong and it could be as simple as like people just don't like it for whatever reason. I mean, I, I remember when Google Glass was going to be the nice, the the next big thing and, it, and I I don't I don't know why that failed other than people didn't want a robot on their face. I, I don't know. I it, it was it, it's, pretty, it's dorky pretty dorky too. Dorky. <laughs> Yeah, they look really a dork. Fashion counts for things, um, and so I, I think that what what that means is that when you see a demo of something, and I, and I would consider Chat GPT I mean, demo esque. I mean, people are using it, but like it's it's I see it as proof of concept for me. Uh, for the most part, like I I I think I mean, if something is at this sort of stage, it's not the time to think that to to apply for different jobs, in my opinion. Because uh, you don't know how it's going to be adopted, and that could be premature. And, I mean, and 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 even some of the things. I, this is another sort of side point. Like the things that we're trying to train ChatGPT to do. I mean, people talk about how oh, if you want to be you know have have great job security, you know, become a a programmer or or a coder or whatever you want to call that person, right? I mean, I I would not have guessed five years ago that the large language model. That was going to be, you know, be, be be writing Shakespeare fan fiction, is also writing like pretty, you know, interesting. Like, is also writing like my optimization algorithm algorithms. You know, I I would not have expected that. So like I, we can't. It's so like, and I think that that's it's kind of surprising. And and maybe that's also a bias of the people who make these things are also coders, so they're very good at maybe making them do the thing that they're already very good at doing. I don't know. <laughs> it's, it's very hard to predict.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, bringing this back a little bit to robotics and, and ChatGPT, how do you see the field of robotics kind of evolving in, in in the next, you know, five to 10 years? And what role do you see things like ChatGPT or, you know, similar types of models playing in that evolution?
1: Well, already in robotics, there are people who are using the equivalent of large language models to help build instructions for robots. I mean, I, I happen to work on a, um, just a, just as disclosure, I, my my laboratory is funded by the Toyota Research Institute. It's a it's a research institute funded by the Toyota Auto Maker company, and one of the things that they are interested in is robots in the home. Uh, they're motivated by other by other things. Being a, a Japanese-founded company, is the aging population in Japan not having caretakers uh, as that as that as the, as the population gets older. So they think that I think very wisely that at some point there'll need to be a market for home robots to do the normal household tasks but the process of trying to get a robot to do a task could be formulated in a way kind of like a chat gpt where it's coming up with a bunch of tokens which were words but maybe are now actions like i want to make a sandwich so maybe there's the open the um, you know, you know, open the door, the cupboard door token. There's the, oh, there's the oh, pick out the bread token and maybe structuring them together in a way that has been trained in a way that makes sense. I, I believe a colleague of mine actually, I, I, was, I think he published some work. It's definitely been, pub, been, been, been publicized for sure in Quanta on how they would use these kinds of models to synthesize a set of actions for robots. Now, but the, the one I think that one thing people in robotics also do uh, acknowledge is the problem of safety, and that again the cost of the cost of making a mistake with a physical machine around physical people is high. I mean, look at self-driving cars. I mean, classic examples. Um, so, in terms of these large language models, they may be good for generating a sequence of tasks to do that would be difficult to find via other computational means, but you also need that level of safety, right? So I'm, I'm, so the people are certainly working on ways to have the, let's just say the flair, if you will, of of a Chat GPT, but with the safety where you can count on it. So a lot of the, so so there's um, a lot more blending between the let's say the, the ML slash AI, the people who are doing the neural network, the neural network type architectures with what we call the more sort of traditional uh, controls types. You know, controls type, controls folks tend to be mathy people, not that people in AI aren't to be clear, but they're some of the mathiest people I know in my field are the controls people. Um, uh, My, my postdoc advisor he bragged that he managed to get his PhD in electrical engineering by only taking math courses and doing controls. And that was like point of pride for him. And they, and the, with mathematics, you could often try to get some certifications of safety. So people, and, and there are all kinds of things in the controls literature for how you would guarantee, in theory, <laughs> in theory, guarantee that uh, a robot uh, with this particular controller, if the controller continues to operate, will never, you know, fail, or at least will never stop, or will guarantee you complete the task, or at least never bump into a unsafe region. So, uh, so where this goes is in the future of robotics is have is finding ways to use the flourish, the flair of neural networks to do cool, crazy things but meshed with that layer that layer of safety and certification that we want to have in a real product around real people.
0: Yeah, so I, I think that's a, a great place to start to wrap up, but as we, we start to um, you know, say our goodbyes here, anything else you would like uh, the audience to know? You know where, where should they go if they want to learn more about some of your research, for example?
1: Well, so uh, so you can if you want to find me on social media platforms on the Twitters or uh, mostly Twitter, also Instagram. You can find me at uh, at Chubiki, which is a C-H-U-B-I-C-K-I. Uh, I think Chewbacca's younger brother is what I always say. Um, uh, and you can find my my work uh, at the dot optimal So optimalroboticslab.com. dot uh, That's where you can find my my published work for my lab, which is uh, a couple years strong now. So we're we're, we're continuing to grow. And publish hopefully things you'll find your audience will find interesting, and uh, and in general, um, just hopefully, hopefully, let's see your audience around the conferences. That'd be fun, you know. If you happen to run into me, you know, stop me, say hello.
0: Awesome. Well, Christian, thanks so much for coming on. You know, I really enjoyed digging into ChatGPT and uh, you know talking robotics. Hopefully, you know, we'll have another opportunity to have you on back down the road, or maybe I'll run into you at one of these conferences. But uh, thanks again, and cheers.
1: Thank you. Either way, it will be a pleasure. Thank you so much for having me, Sean, and you have a wonderful day. Me too.